Well, greetings, Renewal family, and to all who are virtually visiting us this morning. Before we get to today's text uh, and our message for today, I wanted to actually begin by sharing a brief pastoral comment and really issuing a call to our church. This past Friday, I was uh, on a Zoom with several ministry leaders and pastors, and we were just sharing our heart and our thoughts uh, about the Walter Wallace Jr. Uh, shooting. And uh, in the course of that time, one of the brothers shared this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, The Christian vocation is to be in prayer, in the Spirit, at the place where the world is in pain. And as we embrace that vocation, we discover it to be the way of following Christ, shaped according to His messianic vocation to the cross, with arms outstretched, holding on simultaneously to the pain of the world and to the love of God. In light of all that has been happening in our city and our nation, church, our call is to be a people of prayer. And certainly, a significant change in the world happens and involves uh, much more than just prayer. Uh, we are called to act. But significant change in the world cannot happen apart from prayer. As we continue to face various struggles, the ongoing COVID crisis, the struggle uh, for a more just society, the struggle of deep divisions, polarization, and hostility along ethnic and political lines. Church, we must recognize that as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, the problems we are facing aren't merely or, or solely psychological, sociological, physical. They are deeply, deeply spiritual in nature. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our exhaustion, in the midst of our feelings of helplessness and powerlessness, in the midst of our confusion. Brothers and sisters, we must run to the throne of grace because you see Jesus meets us and Jesus grieves with us. That he shares with us in our sorrow and our grief. However, here's what he does not share with us. He is not exhausted like us. He is not helpless like us. He is not powerless. He is not confused. No, to him belongs all power, all authority, all wisdom are his. And so church, I'm calling us as the church to unite our hearts and our voices in prayer. I'm asking that for the course of this month, the entire month of November, that we as a church commit to consistent, focused, prayer for our communities, for our city, for our nation, and even the ends of the earth. I'm encouraging us to consider fasting, which is to forego 
typically food, but it doesn't have to be limited to food, but to forgo, forego something as an expression of our visceral longing, our deep, deep desperation for, for Jesus' power and Jesus' presence to be manifested in our lives and in our world. And we'd like to help you as we call you to prayer, we want to help you to pray by offering a few practical aids in that. First, in the notes below, you're going to find a prayer guide that's designed um, for seven days of the week uh, to have different prayer topics each day. And so you can follow that prayer guide. You can pray it along with your family, perhaps. Uh, but each day, there's going to be a few bullet points to guide you in how you can specifically be praying uh, with us uh, together for, again, our city, nation, and world. In addition, every Wednesday in November, um, and minus the fourth Wednesday, which is that Thanksgiving week, but the first three Wednesdays in November, we will host a Zoom prayer time at noon. So whether you're working from home, whether you are going into an office of sorts, consider this. Consider fasting that lunch hour. Oh, it's 30-minute meeting, but consider fasting that time period and then joining our, our Zoom prayer time. Coming on to join your brothers and sisters uh, in your church family that we would lift our voices together in prayer. One final idea I'd like to offer, perhaps what would, again, normally be a meal time for you. Um, it doesn't have to be dinner time, but let's just say it's dinner time, that you would, instead of eating that evening, fast that meal and do a prayer walk around your community. Again, you can perhaps do this as an individual or with your family or perhaps someone you've already been quarantined with. But just simply walk the streets of your neighborhood, praying for the flourishing, the shalom, the well-being of your neighborhood, Praying specifically for your neighbors who are probably feeling the very same things that you are and yet may not have a place to turn to find comfort, to find peace, to find hope. And so be praying for them and that, of course, ultimately, that they would one day find that hope in Christ, find those things in Christ. So church, may we be faithful to our call, to our vocation, to be a people who are praying in the Spirit, as Wright says, at the places where the world is in pain, arms outstretched, holding on simultaneously to the pain of the world and to the love of God. And so would you bow with me even now in a word of prayer as we uh, commit to this as a church? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in these heartbreaking and frustrating and troubled times, we turn to you now in prayer. We come not based on our own merits or because we're worthy to be heard. We come in the name of Christ on whose merit we are heard. And Lord, at this time, as a church, Lord, we want to commit to calling upon you because we see the need to pray 
and we are reminded and, and we recognize your call for us to be a praying people. For it is through our prayers that you have sovereignly ordained that you would actually move in this world. And so, Lord, as our hearts desire for so many of us, we want to help in some way and we want to do something. And, and certainly we want to continue to explore what we can practically do and how to move our feet. But Lord, do remind us that one of the greatest ways that we can serve our neighbors, serve our communities, serve our country is through prayer, through praying for them on behalf of them and asking that your kingdom power would break through in mighty ways, bringing about the change, the healing, the restoration, the justice that only ultimately you can. And so we thank you for who you are. And even now, as we turn to your word with you further, would you further instruct us in your word to know how to respond rightly in times like this? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, if you've been with us, uh, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes together. And in our passage today, chapter 7, uh, the preacher takes a bit of a stylistic turn, and he begins to employ a series of proverbs. And this is probably uh, what comes to mind when we think about wisdom literature in the Bible, that's probably what we have in mind, this style. Uh, in fact, that's what the book of Proverbs is, right? It's a collection of Proverbs. Now, at the end of chapter 6, the preacher has just posed this question in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? In other words, he's asking, since life is short and life is full of vanity and frustration, how can we live life well? How can we make the most of life? And he begins to answer that question in chapter 7 through this series of Proverbs. Now, if you look at these Proverbs, at first glance, they seem a little haphazard. They seem a little disconnected and random, but... There actually is a unifying theme, and, and that unifying theme or the overarching point that he is making is this. In order to live well under the sun, in order to live well under the sun, you must have wisdom. You must have wisdom. Yes, life is brief. Yes, it's filled with frustration and vanity, and it's difficult, but you will make it even worse for yourself if you lack wisdom. Or, on the other hand, if you live in folly rather than wisdom. And so what he's doing here in our passage today is describing what wisdom looks like. Wisdom's ways and wisdom's benefits. For example, in verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment. He's making the point that your reputation, a good name, your reputation is better than material wealth, which he's referring to when he says precious ointment. Precious ointment was expensive, costly, valuable. 
But he's saying a good name or reputation is much more valuable than just material stuff. Or on the other side of the coin, folly, foolishness, is to live your life more concerned about the amount of cash and credit you have rather than the quality of your character. That's foolishness. As we've seen in Ecclesiastes, poor character, poor character will invite a wealth of trouble. Poor character invites a wealth of trouble into your life. But there are three particular aspects of wise living that the preacher focuses on, and I will describe them under these three headings, and this is what we'll look at. Wisdom welcomes. Secondly, wisdom waits. And third, wisdom watches over. And once again, in the providence of God, I think the lessons here in this text are very, very timely given our present experience. So, first of all, wisdom welcomes. And more specifically, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what the text is getting at. Wisdom welcomes sorrow and discomfort. Wisdom welcomes sorrow and discomfort. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to, the go, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. House of mourning is a funeral. Think about this. Funerals lend themselves to contemplating our lives deeply and seriously. The reality that our days are numbered, that our lives are not guaranteed, they tend to remind us of what really matters in life. In contrast, things like birthday parties or other kinds of celebrations, celebratory types, type of events, they are less likely to lead you to think deeply and meaningfully about your life and how you're living it. He continues in verses 3 and 4 along the same line of thought. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You see, it's not that the life of faith is meant to be this life of joylessness where we walk around in a somber mood and frowning all the time. Jesus himself, uh, during his time on earth, went to plenty of parties and celebrations and he laughed and he got criticized for that. But the emphasis here is on the fact that it's the sad, it's the difficult, even the heartbreaking things in life that are often far more instructive, far more valuable in teaching us what we should value, how we should be living, what truly matters in this life. And this is what he means when he says, by sadness of face, the heart 
is made glad. It's not that we're glad or should be glad about the brokenness itself, but rather as we face the brokenness and as we contemplate the deeper truths about life and our lives, our heart is made glad because we begin to turn away from hoping in and desiring things that are fleeting and that are frivolous. And we turn instead to that which is more substantial and more satisfying. He continues in verses 5 and 6, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. You see, typically, we don't like to hear about our faults, our weaknesses. If anything, our culture is moving more and more towards being very easily, too easily offended, where if anything negative is said or begins to make us uncomfortable, our temptation and certainly the culture around us more and more, you're seeing this, we cancel each other out. We shut each other down. And so it's hard to even have any kind of genuine dialogue with someone because the moment they start to feel uncomfortable or hurt, their feelings are hurt, you get canceled. But wisdom, wisdom would rather be made uncomfortable and hear the truth. Wisdom would rather be uncomfortable so they can hear the truth. He uses the imagery of a pot over crackling thorns. If you've ever been camping, you'll know, and if you've ever tried to, uh, been camping and tried to start a fire, you will know that you can't just grab a log and try to light it on fire. It's never going to work. You need to start with kindling, right? Small, those small, little, tiny, thin, knotty branches. And that's what he has in mind when he's talking about thorns under a pot. He's talking about kindling. But here's the thing about kindling. Once you light the kindling, you can't just depend on the kindling to keep you warm for the rest of the night. It won't. Because even though it burns fast, it burns quickly, it doesn't burn long because it has no substance to it. And this is why you use the kindling to light the logs on fire and the logs will burn long because they have weight, they have substance. By itself, kindling can never keep you warm for the rest of the night. Likewise, he's saying laughter makes a lot of noise like the crackling of kindling and it'll make you feel better for a moment, right? It provides a little bit of warmth. But it lacks weight, it lacks substance, and it will not keep you warm through the long, bitterly cold, dark seasons of life. For this reason, you see, wisdom welcomes sorrow and discomfort. The fool lives an unexamined life. They are 
superficial, they are shallow, and when hardship comes, when discomfort comes, the fool's focus is escape and distraction. They don't want to think about the hard stuff. They don't like how it makes them feel and, and they don't like those um, feelings of discomfort. So they escape, they distract themselves, they surf the web, they binge watch, they uh, escape in their minds or sometimes physically escape. They just run, run away, go on lots of vacations or perhaps even get up and physically move rather than asking questions like, what am I to learn from this? What do my reactions in this situation, what do my emotions say about where my heart really is, about what I'm really valuing, about what really matters to me? And also asking, and is that what I should be valuing? Is that what should be most important to me? Now, this is not to say that sometimes uh, we, we, we don't need appropriate breaks. Of course we do. We, of course we need appropriate breaks from the heaviness of life. And of course you need to laugh every so often. But you see, the fool folly has a pattern of escapism and distraction, whereas wisdom welcomes sorrow and discomfort. They embrace it. And it's not just embracing sadness and discomfort as an end in itself, just for the sake of embracing it, right? Some of us in our disposition, our, our affect, our personality, we're more like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, right? The kind of mopey, um, some of you are, are more like the Eeyore types, and, and right now you're pointing your finger at all the, the Tigger types who are happy all the time and bouncing around, and you're like, see, I told you. Grumpiness, grumpiness is more godly, I told you. But no, Eeyore can be a fool too. Eeyore can be a fool too. It's not welcoming sadness, sorrow for the sake of it, just as an end of itself, in and of itself. It's being willing to face and press into the sadness and the sorrow and the harsh realities of life and then taking the time to self-reflect, to examine your life, asking yourself, what am I to learn about life, about what really matters, asking where your heart really is and where your heart really should be. Again, as our hearts are wrenched and distraught over the tragic shooting of Walter Wallace Jr. And, and as we're disturbed over the ensuing rioting and looting which took place and which his family spoke out against. It's easy to just see that, be disturbed and just kind of let it end there. But instead we should ask questions like, how? Why do these things keep happening? What are the conditions that lead to such events? And in what ways do my actions or inaction contribute? Or what actions could I take to 
positively contribute to help turn the tide. Or, instead of simply being distraught or even appalled by those who vote differently than you, wisdom asks, well, what? what's behind their support? Let me try to understand, what are their hopes? What are their fears? What are their desires? And on the flip side, what are my hopes? What are my fears? What are my desires? And are those desires good? Do they line up with the truth of the gospel? Or have any of these perhaps good desires and intentions morphed into idolatrous desires? Perhaps we're continuing to be frustrated over the way the pandemic has affected so much of life. But again, instead of simply saying, I hope this ends as soon as possible, and that's all you think about just for the discomfort to go away, we should be asking deeper questions. What are we to learn from all of this? Are we learning about the reality of our limitations as human beings? Are we learning about where we're really looking for security, stability, meaning? Are we learning about what our relationship to the community is as we've lived so much of this life isolated for the past few months? What is my relationship to the community? And is it at where it should be? May we all take the time to dwell in the sorrow, press into the sadness, press into the sorrow in a deep and reflective way that results in a transformed perspective and therefore a transformed heart and a transformed life. You see, it would be the height of folly. It would be the height of foolishness to experience as much sorrow and hardship as we are and to not learn anything from it. To walk away unexamined and unchanged. That would be the height of foolishness. May it not be so. Second, wisdom waits. Wisdom waits. And more specifically, wisdom waits to see. Wisdom waits to see. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Wisdom waits to see how a thing turns out, even when, especially when, something starts small and slow. You see, the fool is proud and presumptuous, and they think they already know how something's going to go. But consider how many instances there are in biblical history where something had a small, unimpressive, slow beginning, but grew, grew and ended up, ended by becoming something far greater than imagined. Most poignantly, most significantly, we think of a baby 
born in a manger to a poor young couple. That was the beginning. And consider how great the ending is and will be. You see, but the fool, again, in their pride, in their presumption, assume they know already before seeing the end. In their pride and presumption, they already believe they know how it'll end based on what they've seen. Isn't this what we heard at the cross? If he was really the son of God, he wouldn't be up on the cross. Come off the cross if you're really the son of God. The fool always thinks they know best and therefore rarely gives people or plans a chance. They're so good at poo-pooing ideas. It's the attitude that says, they'll never change. It'll never work. I'm wasting my time. You see, actually, that's a fool's attitude. Wisdom waits to see. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Continuing in the same vein of thinking, the preacher is saying, the fool, in pride and presumption, they trust their own perspective and view on things too much, too much. And so they're quick to anger when plans and when people are not moving at the speed and in the direction they want and they think is best. Everyone else is an idiot. Verse 10, say not why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Again, the fool in pride and presumption overvalue their own perspective. And in this instance, they conclude that past times were better than the present when that may not be the case. In ignorance, they bemoan the problems of the present and long for the former days, the good old days, failing to see maybe it was never as good as they thought it was. They fail to consider that perhaps the less troubled past was only less troubled for them that they had the privilege of being sheltered from the problems that were always there. They, perhaps being stuck in ignorance and being myopic, but believing that their perspective is the only one and the right one. The fool says, I see clearly. I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure my perspective is right. Whereas wisdom, out of a heart of humility, waits to see. Could it be? Maybe my view, maybe my opinion, maybe my perspective isn't infallible after all. And isn't this posture sorely needed today? Isn't this so necessary today? You see, most folks are stuck in their own echo chambers. Social media has just made this worse. We only follow and listen to people who already think like us 
And when we see, and our, our, our feed on social media only affirms our view and our way of thinking because we only follow people like us. And therefore, when a, a contrary view or an opposing view pops up, we just get angry. We, we are so quick to attack, to get triggered and to attack. But wisdom, wisdom slows down to consider perhaps my perspective could be wrong on this. Perhaps my perspective is limited and I'm only seeing in part. Or perhaps your perspective is right. But even if it is, foolishness, foolishness is, if you're right, when someone begins to push back, someone begins to question you, you simply beat them over the head with argumentation. And you might win the argument, but you will lose the friendship. You will lose the relationship. That's foolishness. Wisdom waits and sees. Hey, this person may not see what I see right now. They might not see this angle or this perspective, but Maybe the end can be better than the beginning. Let's see the end of things and not just assume right now that this person's always going to be where they are now. Maybe the end is and will be better than the beginning, says wisdom. And therefore you listen with patience, with love, and with humility you engage. Lastly, wisdom watches over verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You see, money is fleeting. However, even though it's fleeting, it does offer a measure of protection and security in this life. In an economic downturn, the person with a big savings account is much better off, practically speaking, than the person who is living paycheck to paycheck. Likewise, the preacher saying, living according to wisdom serves to protect you in this life. It secures you, it saves you from trouble in this already troubled life. And this is why Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, 13 to 18, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. This is true. And this is encouraging because you see this wisdom is not some mysterious, unattainable, esoteric thing. 
This wisdom is right here for us. It's available to us in the Word of God. And it grows out of a relationship with God, walking in a healthy fear of God. So then every believer should be incredibly wise. Every believer should be living these lives of incredible wisdom, right? Well, we wish. But you and I know that we are so often prone to walk in foolishness rather than wisdom. Our hearts are wayward. And rather than choosing the path of wisdom, we choose the path of folly. We bring trouble on ourselves and we bring trouble on others because of our foolishness, our foolish words, our foolish actions, our foolish decisions and desires. Furthermore, remember this is still Ecclesiastes, a book that's very honest about how life isn't all neat and tidy and it doesn't often work like we think it should. Throughout the rest of chapter 7 into chapters 8 and 9, the preacher makes the point that even if you live by wisdom, even if you live this incredibly wise life, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that everything's going to go well. Horrible tragedies still happen to very wise people. And at the end of chapter 9, he describes the story of a poor wise man whose city was under siege by a mightier kingdom. And this poor wise man saved his city from this greater kingdom, I guess by his counsel. He saved his city, yet instead of being a hero for it, he was despised, forgotten, and ignored. That's the story he tells. So, our ultimate hope and comfort must not be in ourselves and in our ability to live wisely because there are many times we're going to act a fool and our hope and comfort must not even be in living wisely in and of itself because as much as living according to wisdom will guard and watch over you and save you so much trouble it cannot insulate you from all trouble Verses 13 and 14 describe how nothing is ultimately in our control. And yes, at times in life, even the wise and the righteous suffer greatly. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate comfort is not in our ability to live wisely or in living wisely in and of itself. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate comfort is in wisdom personified literally you see John chapter 1 describes how the logos the word the wisdom of God in the beginning in the beginning the word was with God he was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God who took on flesh and he came into this world to rescue a world full of fools who made a mess of our lives and a mess of his world, the world that he created. Jesus is the ultimate poor wise man who saved his city even though his city despised and ignored and rejected him. 
Jesus died a fool's death upon a cross. Even though he was the wisest person who ever walked the face of this earth, he was literally wisdom embodied, and yet he died like a fool upon the cross, and he did this to take the punishment we deserved for our foolish living because we foolishly lived as though we didn't need God. We foolishly lived as though our wisdom was enough, as if we knew best when that certainly was not the case. And so Jesus took our place, he took our punishment, and for all who trust in him, he guarantees you a place in his eternal city where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more shootings, no more looting, no more racism, no more division, but only perfect love, perfect justice, perfect peace forevermore. And until that day comes, Jesus is transforming us by his power that you and I might walk in wisdom more and more and more. And even though walking in wisdom will save you much trouble, it will save you so much unnecessary trouble, it still will not guard you from all trouble. But even still, our hearts find tremendous hope and comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ, the very wisdom of God, He watches over us, He walks with us, and He guarantees, through His death and resurrection, He has guaranteed the end will be better than the beginning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for indeed, you are the Word, the Wisdom, who became flesh. And you made your dwelling among us. You saved us from our folly. Lord, we see the effects of folly, foolishness, rebellion throughout our world. We see the incredibly damaging consequences of hearts turned away from you. And so, Lord, as our heart's desire is to see things change, would you start with us? Would you turn our hearts fully to you? Turn us away more and more from our foolishness. Turn us more and more away from trusting in our own wisdom and worldly wisdom. And turn us more and more to the wisdom that is found in you, our wisdom. Christ, you have become for us wisdom. And so we look to you and ask that you would enable and empower us and transform us to walk in your wisdom more and more, not only for our own benefit and flourishing, but that it would result in the flourishing of the world around us as we walk in wisdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.